Hi, this is Jennifer Matteris, and as I've been doing for the past couple of episodes, I'd like to deal with a couple of things before I start the podcast. The first thing that I'd like to do is say thank you and give a shout out to Megan, who left a really nice message on the blog, and also made a really good suggestion for a future podcast, so um, I will have to see if I can uh, get together something for that. And thank you very much to Megan. And the next couple of things I actually want to deal with are in regards to the subject matter of today's episode. Uh, First of all, I'd like to remind everybody that today's episode is about a mass shooting. And I know there may be questions as to why a mass shooting would be discussed on a podcast about disasters. Now, a really sarcastic part of me does want to say that it's my podcast and I can do what I want. But in all honesty, it's kind of hard to argue that a mass shooting isn't the very definition of a man-made disaster, a large-scale event which results in multiple deaths and injuries. I should also add that normally when it comes to mass shootings, I prefer not to mention the names of the shooters. Given the common motive that many shooters give that they want to kill to be known, they shouldn't be allowed to be known. That said, in this episode and in future episodes about mass shootings, I will use the killer's name in the course of the podcast, but only for as long as I need to. And next, I'd also like to note that if you started listening to this episode hoping to hear about the conspiracy theories concerning who really committed the Port Arthur massacre, you may as well stop listening now. This is not the podcast you're looking for. There are certainly other podcasts out there which touch on that sort of speculation, but not this one. And finally, some trigger warnings for this episode. This episode and the subject matter involved means that it will feature discussion of guns and gun control, mental health, violence against men, women, children, and animals, and a mention of the use of a racial slur by the killer. And now that we've taken care of business, I would like to thank you to the episode and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 8, The Port Arthur Massacre, April 28th, 1996, 35 deceased, 23 wounded. If people didn't do these unfortunate things, then you guys wouldn't have a job. Martin Bryant to the officers he was speaking with in his police confession video. Port Arthur in Tasmania is a beautiful place with a terrible history. It was first settled by the British in 1830 as a timber cutting camp, but it quickly became a place where the British began sending some of their worst convicts. I mean, everybody knows the whole thing about Australia being started by Britain, just kind of dumping all of their convicts over in Australia. But in the case of Port Arthur, it really was a place where they were sending some of the worst and it kind of served as an escape-proof prison from 1833 to 1877. During the time that this place was running, 1,646 men lost their lives, including 180 guards. 
It was not a hospitable place to live, even if you wanted to be there. The waters that surrounded the area, because it was near the sea, uh, were swarming with sharks. So you couldn't get out that way, at least not safely. And the countryside surrounding the area was incredibly inhospitable. And there really were no nearby towns to run to. You were basically in the middle of nowhere with nowhere to go. Some people would just kill another prisoner just to receive a death sentence from the warden to avoid having to stay in Port Arthur another day. And after they died, they were taken over and buried on the island of the dead. At this particular time, there are 1,100 people buried on the Isle of the Dead. And it's one of the many places that you can visit if you go to Port Arthur, which now runs as a historical site. It's over 90 acres. And if you see pictures of it, it's actually really, it's kind of beautiful. You know, even if you know the tragic history and, and what happened there and how a lot of people suffered when they were there, you know, even though they were convicts, they really did go through a lot of horrible things. And you see these, these buildings and they look really, you know, interesting and beautiful and and there's things like the kind of the crumbling ruin of the penitentiary there's kind of the big stone walls that you see and that's kind of the biggest thing that you will see when you look at pictures of the areas is this building that had started as a flour mill and a granary in 1857 and it was converted into a four-story penitentiary it housed 136 convicts of quote-unquote bad character on the bottom two floors and then 480 bunks on the top floors for better behaved convicts. There are all sorts of other little buildings around the place. There's a police station, law courts, a guard tower. It's really great stone guard tower. Um, officers quarters, a commandant's house, uh, there's the ruins of a hospital that was built in 1842. And there's also, it's kind of, it, it kind of shows where the priorities lie. There was, you know, there's these ruins of this hospital and then there's this, an asylum, which is really well kept and well maintained, um, that is also still standing. Um, there's a, another separate prison on the, on the land that was built in 1849 and the meaning of it the reason that it was built um, it was for isolation and contemplation the prisoners that were in there were locked in for 23 hours a day they would be allowed out for one hour a day by themselves in a little area with very high walls there was also um, it's actually a really pretty building when they show the inside a really really interesting design and there's a chapel these long stairs that you go up and when they would take these prisoners into the chapel they were actually also kept in isolation as well they were actually kind of steered into these seats that had walls on either side so they could only see um the parson or the preacher reverend whoever was um um handling the uh the chapel there were, you know, other cottages for the medical personnel, magistrates, the um, religious um, religious um, employees who worked there, I guess you could say. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of different um, uh, buildings 
that were there and now they do maintain it as a place where you can go and you can kind of um, learn about some of Australia's darker history and it really is one of um, and it was at the time of of this tragedy it, it really is a one of the um, uh, heritage sites of Australia it's it's very popular and even now um about 250 to 300,000 people visit every year. So this is a place where you know a lot of people um have you know their livelihood in helping people learn about the place as tour um tour managers and and tour guides and people you know they you know they um care for the grounds and and take care of the history and and you know uh run the gift shop and run the cafe and all these little things um you know it's it's very much a place in the area uh that helps with Port Arthur's livelihood for the people who live nearby. Excuse me. Um, while that is one of, uh, you know, while that is a feature of Australia's darker history, another darker side of Australia's history is the mass shootings that they started having. They they actually haven't had a lot. I mean, when you when you compare, I was going to say when you compare them to America, they haven't had a lot. When you compare anybody to America, they haven't had a lot. If you go on Wikipedia and you look up um, mass shootings in Australia, there are eight mass shootings that are listed for Australia. Just to give you some idea of how bad it is for America, there are 141 going back to 1929. And those are just the ones, you know, you have to understand those are just the notable ones. That's not counting, you know, people who killed their whole family. And, you know, normally those don't get mentioned unless it's a very large number. But going back to Australia's mass shootings, um, of the ones that are listed on Wikipedia, um, three are prior to the Port Arthur massacre, they're actually um, they're actually in the 19th century, in the early um, 20th century, and they seem to deal with a lot of conflict between white settlers and um, indigenous Australians. Only one of the mass shootings that's listed on Wikipedia occurred after Port Arthur, and that would be the Monash University shooting in 2002, in which two were killed and five were wounded. But Australia had a rash of mass shootings that started about a little less than 10 years before uh, this particular uh, tragedy. The first was the Hoddle Street Massacre. It happened on Sunday, August 9th, 1987. Julian Knight, who was 19 and had recently been discharged from the army, killed seven people during a murder spree in Clifton Hill, which was a Melbourne suburb, who sentenced to seven consecutive life terms. Julian Knight spent his time in prison alternative, uh, alternatively studying different courses. I mean, the list of courses that he studied is like a mile long. And suing the authorities for so many different offenses quote-unquote, um, that he was finally deemed a, vexati a vexatious litigant and denied the right to file more lawsuits, which he turned around and sued because of. Um, the 
Next massacre that's listed is the Queen Street Massacre. On December 8, 1987, which is obviously a few months after Julian Knight's shooting, Frank Vikovic, a failed law student in his early 20s, entered the Telecom Employees Credit Union Office and the Philatelic Bureau, both of which were on different floors of the same building in Melbourne, and he murdered eight people with an M1 carbine. He ended his spree um, of kind of, he was kind of wandering through the building and, and shooting, you know, first people in the telecom employees uh, credit union office. And then he went up a couple of floors to the philatelic bureau and shot some people. And then he um, wandered down to the 11th floor um, in the accounting department. And there several employees gathered together and basically jumped him to try and stop him. And at that point, he uh, broke a window and jumped out and fell 11 stories to his death. It was later found that uh, Frank Vitkovic had a file of clippings of Julian Knight's shooting only four months earlier. So he may have been inspired a little bit by what Julian Knight had done. Another massacre um, that happened uh, a few years later was the Strathfield Massacre. On August 17th, 1991, Wade Frankham killed seven at the Strathfield Plaza in Sydney before shooting himself in the head. So, I mean, to us in America now, with the past 30 years behind us, that does not seem like a rash of shootings. That seems like three months if you don't count, you know, kind of smaller mass shootings. Um, but it was kind of notable people you know did kind of it did start people talking and and especially in um governmental circles there were um discussions about what to do and and it was kind of like america where you know you you kind of talk about it and then nothing happens so our shooter martin bryant martin bryant was born in 1967 to carlene and morris bryant from the beginning he showed signs that he wasn't um that he had some intellectual delays and that he wouldn't be able to to keep up uh, according to his mother he would break his toys out of frustration that he just kind of couldn't figure them out and he he just couldn't play the right way his iq was tested um i've seen 78 i've seen 68 um basically about the level of an 11 year old because of this i mean of course, he was bullied and mistreated by other students. He really was um, kind of the target of being picked on and, and, and you know, it, kids find a weakness and they will go after it. And in this case, they certainly did. And Carlene and, and Morris Bryant did make a point of, of keeping a careful eye on their son. They really um, understood not only that he was um, being picked on, but also that he was kind of giving it back and that he did um, kind of have some anger issues of his own and some control issues. And in 1979, um, when he was 12 years old, he had an accident playing with fireworks and he ended up in the hospital. There's video of an interview of him as a little boy and he's this, you know, he's this cute little boy. He's, you know, he's got blonde hair and blue eyes and, and um, it, it kind of, um, 
shows that he really doesn't understand, he does, really doesn't quite grasp what happened. He's kind of telling what happened about, you know, playing, you know, playing with these fireworks and getting injured. And, and the woman in the, in the, the, um, the video asks him, do you think you'll be playing with firecrackers anymore? And he says, yes. And she says, don't you think you've learned a lesson from this? And he says, yes, but I'm still playing with them. And I mean, you know, it might be, you know, it might sound refreshing honesty from another child, but um, there's just something about the way that he speaks in the uh, earlier in the um, video and, and going in, into this that, that makes it sound a little upsetting. Like, no, you didn't learn your lesson. Don't stick your finger in the, in the electric socket, that sort of thing. Upon leaving school, um, Martin Bryant was assessed for and given a long-term disability pension from the Australian government. Uh, he was assessed by a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist noted, quote, cannot read or write, does a bit of gardening, and watches TV. Only his parents' efforts prevent further deterioration. Could be schizophrenic, and parents face a bleak future with him. So, basically, he was, you know, he's getting this disability pension. His parents are kind of watching over him still to make sure that he doesn't do anything, doesn't harm anyone, um, doesn't harm himself, and kind of to do, um, to earn a little extra money and to, I guess, take up some time, he starts doing odd jobs around around the neighborhood where um, he lives in Hobart. And, you know, in Hobart and Tasmania, I should add. And this is how he meets Helen Harvey. Helen Harvey is a 50 year old woman at the time that he meets that she meets him. Um, and heiress to part of the Tattersall's lottery fortune. And she befriends him when he is 19. Uh, you know, he's this, there's a picture of them and, and he's kind of a young blonde, you know, kind of, kind of a good looking young blonde guy. And she's, um, she uh, is an older, kind of squat, dark-haired woman with glasses, and um, her his mother does address in an interview that I watched, you know, kind of, she says, no, it wasn't, you know, people kind of jump to the conclusion, well, was it, you know, sexual? And she says, well, no, it was kind of a motherly thing where she wanted to kind of take care of him, and, and he was okay. He was, I don't know, I don't want to say okay with that, but um, they clicked. Uh, sh he showed up at her house one day, her and her mother, Hilva, lived in this very large mansion, and it was very, um, uh, the, the lawn was unkempt, and, and they had a lot of animals in the house and in, on the property, and so he showed up and basically said, well, do you need somebody to mow your lawn or, you know, take care of your garden? And she uh, said, sure. So what he would do is he would come over and he would help with the 14 dogs that they had living in the house and the dozens of cats that they had in the property. Now, at a certain point, um, the Harvey residence was cited by officials of the state, for the state of the property, excuse me, for the state of the property, because it really was not the the um, tidiest place in the world with all those animals running around. And so they were kind of told that they had to get rid of the animals that were on the estate. At that point, um, Helen bought a 72-acre farm called Taurusville, which was located about halfway between the mansion and Port Arthur. And that was where they would bring these animals to. And they actually started spending a lot more time there. 
And now around 1990, uh, there is a call put into the authorities that Helen and Hilva Harvey um, are in need of medical attention. And they come and they find them both um, needing to go to the hospital. At that point, uh, Hilva, a few weeks later, passes away. And this leaves Helen alone in the house. So once she's alone, she invites Martin Bryant to move into the mansion with her. And when she goes to the farm, she takes Bryant with her. From the start, he's sort of the problem. Uh, neighbors always have something nice to say about Helen, how she's very so social and very friendly. But in interviews, when they talk about uh, Martin Bryant, they say that from the start, he was very strange and very odd. He didn't behave um, in, a, in a normal way. At one point, he told the neighbors at the farm, the Featherstones, that if they came on his property, he would shoot them. And that was a that was a big thing with uh, Martin Bryant. Martin Bryant would shoot people shopping at a local roadside stand with his pellet gun. He carried a pellet gun a lot. People who were asked to inv uh, excuse me, police who were asked to investigate the um, shooting of the pellet gun at the people at the roadside stand also found out that he was wandering around the area at night shooting dogs and passing cars with his pellet gun. So at that point, the police had a psychologist speak with him, and the Bryant told the psychologist that he fantasized about shooting people. According to the psychologist's notes, it says, Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control. And that does seem to be a big thing. Even though he is living with Helen Harvey, uh, Carlene and Morris are, are, are paying close attention to what he's doing and trying to make sure that he does not get himself in trouble and trying to make sure that they are still his guardians. And, and um, it's taking a very hard toll on Morris, as we'll soon see. But before that, uh, there was an accident, a car accident, and in 1992, and Helen Harvey dies instantly. Um, Helen Harvey and Martin Bryant are both in the car. And Bryant um, uh, had previously grabbed onto the wheel and yanked it to the side as a joke. He'd already, he had already tried this three times. Um, he would, you know, kind of reach over and grab it. He thought it was funny. And uh, Helen Harvey had told friends that she, there was a reason um, that she would not drive um, uh, above 60 kilometers per hour because she was not sure when he might reach for that wheel. And so she wouldn't really drive very fast. She died immediately in the accident, but Martin Bryant suffered from serious head and neck injuries, and he actually spent the next seven months in the hospital. Because of Helen's death, however, he ended up inheriting her estate of $550,000. This included the attached property. So he inherited the mansion, he inherited the farm. But during his hospital stay, uh, the farm at Torresville was sold and Brian's mother, Carlene, um, petitioned to have his affairs legally transferred to her as his legal guardian since he didn't really have the mental capacity to ha handle money. Um, 
so she kind of, um, you know, his parents kind of held the purse strings such as it was to make sure that he didn't go out and just blow it all. But he did use the money um, to uh, do some things. Uh, for the most part, he used it to travel. He went on 14 or 15 different long-haul flights to different destinations uh, far away. And he found that the destinations itself weren't the thing that was really interesting to him. What really interested to him, interested him, excuse me, was sitting on the flight next to somebody who couldn't li couldn't go anywhere, couldn't walk away, and had to sit there and listen to him. So it was kind of like he was just trying to sit there and make friends with his seatmates. That was what he was doing. He always found that the most interesting thing, trying, you know, having these these discussions with um, people sitting next to him. And it's, it kind of makes a lot of sense if you look at certain things that were said about um, him in the past. There's notes from a psychologist that I read where it basically said that he shouldn't um, have a job and he should have that long-term disability coverage um, uh, stipend from the, the government because he would, wouldn't be able to hold down a job because he would always annoy his coworkers. Uh, so he, it was, he was somebody who really didn't make friends easily because he, uh, he really just could not grasp how to interact with people. And, uh, he would actually later on be diagnosed as, as having Asperger's, um, Asperger's, which, uh, you know, would explain a lot of, of his behavior. Now, his father Morris, um, at one point tried to uh, purchase a bed and breakfast named Seascape. It's actually a beautiful little place uh, near the ocean and, you know, obviously with a name like Seascape. And he was trying to get the funding together to buy it. But a, an older couple named David and Nolene Martin bought the property before he could secure enough financing. And most people would just kind of shrug it off and just kind of be disappointed that they had not ended up getting that property. But Morse was really upset about it. And he would complain bitterly about it and talk about the Martins as though they had bought the place specifically to spite him. Martin Bryant would hear this and he internalized it. And he started to feel the same way, that, the, that David and Norlene Martin had gone out and bought this place, you know, probably cackling all the way, uh, specifically to spite their family. After uh, Martin Bryant's accident, Morris quit his job to care for his son and for the properties that his son had inherited. He started to devote everything to, you know, kind of keeping his eye on, on Martin Bryant and, and making sure that he was not... Um, you know, that he, that he wasn't out doing something he shouldn't be and that he, you know, was just there and not, not hurting anyone. But this took a toll. Morris went missing one day in the, in the winter of 1993. And, and I, I say winter, I mean winter in Australia. So it would be July, August, um, only a couple of months after his son was released from the hospital. 
A note was found pinned to a door asking for the police to be called, and the police came and, and they came to look for um, Morris, and they uh, they looked all over, and they finally went um, brought in divers to a local uh, dam reservoir, and they went down and they found Morris's body. It was in the water, weighted down. And it was actually alongside several sheep car carcasses, which was weird because no sheep were known to drink in that reservoir. Police recalled that while they were there, while they were looking for his father, after they had brought him up and, and had Martin identify his father, Martin really had little to no interest in his father being missing. He really didn't seem to be concerned. He wasn't crying. He wasn't upset. After he identified his father's body and they were kind of taking care of everything, he seemed to be more interested in asking the female cops out to dinner than he was in the fact that his father was deceased. Upon, you know, his father's death, after this, Martin Bryan inherited another $250,000. So now he has a lot of money that he can spend. But he also has a lot that he, you know, he has a lot that he can spend, but it's not something where he's, you know, um, blowing it all on, 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 you know, fancy cars or anything. In fact, what he really seemed to, to do was buy a lot of very odd clothing. He would wear, uh, you know, this straw Panama hat and a linen suit and these shiny lizard skin shoes, which, I mean, not to be crass, but it kind of makes me picture a pimp in the Bahamas. Like, I don't even know. It's just a very weird outfit. Um, and he, he bought like an electric blue suit and, he would he would carry around a suitcase with him everywhere and tell anyone he could that he was a successful businessman. But the thing was, he really didn't have a job. He didn't have to have a job, for one thing, but he didn't have a job because he really couldn't get one. He couldn't read, he couldn't write, he didn't go to college, he barely passed out of high school. So, I mean, you know, barely graduated, he, 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 he couldn't get a job. Uh, and he didn't need to. With that much money in the bank, he really didn't need to get a job or anything like that. So he developed a hobby, weapons. When he was 14, his father gave him a BB gun. And later on, his father would say that it was probably one of the worst decisions he ever made, which is telling considering he didn't live long enough to see what his son would later do. Martin Bryant would um, hide by the highway with that pellet gun and he would shoot at passing motorists. Uh, he once shot a parrot out of a tree, and they walked up to the incapacitated bird, and he shot it, shot it point blank in the head several times until it was dead. So he just really got into, um, you know, having that BB gun and, and being able to do things with it. And when he finally was able to buy guns, he certainly did. Um, he bought his first gun in 1993. It was an AR-10 semi-automatic rifle. Um, other guns that he bought included a 10-gauge Daewoo shotgun, a Colt AR-15 carbine assault rifle, a L1A1 SLR 308 caliber battle rifle, which held 30 51 millimeter steel jacket armor-piercing bullets. Um, 
I, you know, if I if I am saying these, I do want to add if I am saying these gun names wrong or any sort of gun references wrong, please forgive me. Um, the only gun that I have ever fired is a M16 in a military history class about 20 years ago in college. So uh, bear with me. Now, this is the point at which we get to April 28th, 1996. Six weeks prior to uh, a few weeks prior to um, this happening, uh, this day, this particular day, uh, a man walked into a elementary school in Dunblane, Scotland, and killed children, small children, and just devastated the United Kingdom. And there are more there's more than one person I've seen in interviews that I watched uh, for this podcast that suspect that this is something that may have set Bryant off, that he may have watched that and thought that that's what I'll do. So at 6 a.m. that morning, his alarm goes off. This is odd. Bryant doesn't have a job. He didn't really use his alarm clock for any, anything because he didn't have anywhere to go. At the time, he had a girlfriend. Um, her name was Petra. And at 8 a.m. that morning, she leaves the house. Bryant switches on the burglar alarm and leaves the house at 9.47. At 11 a.m., he arrives at Forset Village, which is a, a small town between Hobart and, and Port Arthur, and he continues on to Port Arthur. Um, he is witnessed um, driving into Seascape down the Arthur Highway around quarter to noon. He stops at the guest house for Seascape, where the Martins live. Seascape, there's there's one building, and then there's this little cottage off to the side. When he gets there, he, he walks in, and he fires several shots at Nolene Martin, killing her instantly. David Martin appears, and Martin Bryant gags him and then stabs him repeatedly with a kitchen knife. So now he's he's killed. For the first time, he's killed two people. At this point, uh, he goes outside to see that a couple has arrived at Seascape, and they ask to see the accommodations. Martin Bryant tells them they can't see them. Uh, his parents are away and his girlfriend is inside. They see his car reversed up to the front door of the cottage. They don't know why, um, but they assume, uh, but presumably it was, well, they don't assume it, but presumably it was to unload ammunition. The couple describe him as rude and they decide, okay, we're not dealing with this guy. And they leave at about 1235. When Bryant leaves, he takes the keys to Seascape with him. And now he's headed to Port Arthur. On the way, he, he pulls over in his car. He's driving a Volvo, this yellow Volvo with a surfboard on the top of it. He looks just like any other 
you know, Australian dude driving down the road and he gets out and he pulls over to assist some people whose car is overheating. And you can only imagine, you know, how, you know, he, he must have seemed pretty harmless. To look at him, he really wasn't um, intimidating. He wasn't very, you know, big, you know, he wasn't really, you know, big or buff or anything. He was, had shoulder length, blonde hair, very pale. And he, um, uh, you know, his gaze may have been a little unsettling at times, but he could kind of fake it long enough to go, um, you know, to kind of help these people and tell them at one point he did tell them, you know, you should come to Port Arthur for some coffee later. So he gets back in his car and he starts driving again. And this time, instead of going to part Port Arthur, um, historical site, he drives past and he heads towards another location owned by the Martins. At this point, he encounters Roger Larner pulling out of his driveway. Now, Larner had met Martin Bryant about 15 years before, but he didn't recognize him at the time. Martin Bryant told him that he had been surfing and that he had bought a property named Fog Lodge and that he was looking to buy some cattle from Larner. He then said something about buying the Martin's property next door. At this point, he asks if Roger's wife, Mary Larner, is home. And Larner says yes and says, oh, you know, we can go down to see her together. But Bryant kind of immediately backpedals and says, no, no, you know, don't worry about it. And he gets back in his car and he says, I'll come back later. This is when Martin Bryant heads for Port Arthur. At 1.10 p.m., Martin Bryant gets into line at the toll booth at the site's entrance. At this moment in time that he gets there, there's about 500 people at the historical site at Port Arthur. He gets close to the toll booth in his car, and then he moves to the back again. When he reaches the front of the line again, he claims someone almost reversed into him, and then he pays the entry fee, and... He parks near the water's edge close to the Broad Arrow Cafe. At this point, he, he talks to the security manager at the site. And the security manager tells him that he has to move his car because that area is reserved for camper vans. Marmbrai moves the car. It kind of sits there for a few minutes. And then he, he moves his Volvo back to where he originally parked it near the cafe. Now... The security manager sees him get out of his car, get out a large blue duffel bag and a video camera. But at this point, he just kind of lets it slide. He's like, okay, fine, whatever. And he just kind of ignores him as he goes into the Broad Arrow Cafe. Now, the time is, is 1.30 p.m., give or take. The Broad Arrow Cafe, is, it's... It's not a very large uh, cafe. The cafe area part of the, the building is actually a very small part off to the left when you enter. Uh, most of it is, is a gift shop area. And then, of course, there's the area in the back where they kind of make the stuff um, for the cafe. People would go in there to wait for ferries to arrive and depart, as well as take a break while exploring the grounds. It was kind of a little, um, if you look at pictures of it, it was kind of 
Um, it had some stone walls, and a lot of it seemed to be kind of, it looked like it was clapped together, basically. So Martin Bryant orders a light lunch, and he takes the uh, he takes his lunch out to the front deck, sets it down, and starts to eat. He starts making chatter with the people around him, and he's saying things like, um, he says, "There's a lot of wasps out today," and. As if we're ever, I've read a couple of things, depending on what source you use, when he says there's a lot of wasps out today, about today, excuse me, um, you know, some people say, oh, he was talking about yellow jackets. And some people say, oh, he was talking about, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants wasps. And given what he says next, I believe it was probably more the latter because the next thing that he says is he makes a racial slur he says there's not a lot of japs about at this point when he finishes he takes his tray back inside the cafe and he returns it then he takes his bag and the video camera and he walks to the left of, of the building, into the cafe area. He walks to the back of this kind of rectangular section of the room. He walks to a table in the back. He sets the video camera down on the table, facing towards the front of the room, so that it can film everything. And he reaches into the bag and he takes out the knife that he killed David Martin with and he puts it down next to the video camera. Then he reaches into the bag and he removes the Colt AR-15 SP-1 carbine with the Colt scope. And he takes out a 30 round magazine. He leaves the bag on the table and the magazine that he had um, is presumed to have been partly emptied from the murders of the Martins. At this point, he puts the gun to his hip, and he starts shooting. The first people who die in the cafe are Malaysian tourists. Their um, names are Mo, Ye, uh, Mo, Mo Yi Ing and Su Ling Chung, and they were sitting at the next table right next to him. He basically just blew them away. The next person he shoots is Mick Sargent. He shoots him on the, in the scalp, but it's just a graze. However, he kills Mick Sargent's girlfriend, Kate Scott, with a shot to the back of the head. He turns toward Joanne Winter and her 15-month-old son, Mitchell. But her husband, Jason, who had been helping with the cafe's staff, distracted him by throwing a tray at him so that he wouldn't shoot at his family. So this allowed Joanne's father to push his daughter and grandson under the table. As these first shots are being fired, the security manager who spoke to Brian earlier about where to park in Kingston heard the shots from where he was and begins running toward the front of the cafe from the outside to help. Back inside the cafe, Anthony Nightingale had stood up when Bryant began firing, and at this point, Bryant turns the gun on him. Nightingale yells, no, not here, and Bryant shoots him, killing him with a shot through his neck and spine. 
Bryant loads another magazine into the gun uh, and aims at a table which had been attended by ten friends, some of whom had gone into the gift shop after finishing their meal. He murders Kevin Sharp with one shot and Walter Bennett with the next. The bullet which killed Walter Bennett passed through his body and killed Raymond Sharp, who was Kevin's brother. All three of these men had their backs to Martin Bryant, and they did not see what was coming. One of them had even said, that's not funny, upon hearing the first shots, because he thought they were firecrackers. At the same time, Gerald Broom, Gay, and John Fiddler were all struck by bullet fragments, and they were also sitting at that table. But, you know, at the time, they, they dived under. And Gay Fiddler had said at one point, while they were all hiding under their table, the man behind me hasn't got a head. And she kind of realized at that point that that was Ray Sharp. Outside, you, have, you, have, you still have security manager in Kingston, and he's coming upon a man in the, in the front doorway of the, uh, of the cafe, bleeding profusely. So Kingston almost immediately turns around and starts to yell for people outside to run for cover, to follow him for cover. In the cafe, Martin Bryant turns to a table where Tony and Sarah Kiston and Andrew Mills are seated. Tony Kiston and Andrew Mills stand up at the sound of the shots. Tony pushes his wife away and Sarah hides under the table and both men are shot in the head. Thelma Walker and Pamela Law are struck by shrapnel before being dragged to the ground by Peter Crosswell, um, who brings the two under a table with him. So they're hiding under this table. But these tables are, you know, you have to understand, I mean, they're cafe tables. They're these, like, flimsy wooden things. So that, you know, some of these bullets may go through them. They're not exactly the, the best shields in the world. Patricia Baker is also struck by the same bullet fragments as, as these three people. By now, people inside the cafe and outside the cafe are starting to understand that this is not a reenactment at the historical site. A lot of people thought they were hearing, you know, somewhere off in the distance, they were hearing people um, reenacting maybe a prison escape or something like that. But that is not what was going on. Martin Bryant is standing near the main exit. And this make at this point, and that's making uh, escape really difficult. He turns to a table where Graham Collier, Carolyn Lawton, and her daughter Sarah are seated. Sarah's only 15. Graham Collier is so shot in the jaw, and he actually nearly drowns in his own blood. Carolyn Lawton threw herself on top of her daughter, and she ended up being shot in the back. She would end up living, but she discovered after her surgery that her daughter Sarah had been shot in the head and had not survived. Bryant then turned toward the table where Mary and Mervyn Howard were seated. So he shoots Mervyn Howard. The shot goes through him, through the window, and hits a table on the balcony outside. So people who kind of didn't know what was going on and were standing outside kind of had it confirmed at that point because now there are bullets coming through the window. He shot Mary in the neck, and then he leaned over an empty baby stroller and shot her another time in the head. Both of the Howards did not survive. Then he moves toward the gift shop area. As he's moving toward the gift shop area, Robert Elliott stands up and is shot in the arm and the head. 
he lives, but he is lying slumped against the fireplace in the in the uh, cafe. All of this, however, from the first shot that Bryant took to the two Malaysian tourists to the time he leaves the cafe area takes between 15 and 30 seconds. I think it just took me about 25 minutes to describe what happened. So now he's in the gift shop area. He turns toward two women who are working in the gift shop, Nicole Burgess, who's 17 years old, and Elizabeth Howard. He shoots Burgess in the head and Howard in the arm and the chest, killing them both. There's a woman named Coralie Lever who's hiding behind a screen with some others. Uh, her husband, Dennis, is not so lucky. Uh, he is shot in the head and dies. Now there's an exit door which went through the display area to the balcony, which would have been at the, the front, but it was locked. There was no way to get through without a key. And people had tried to get out that door but they were unable to escape. And so now they were just kind of cowering in corners. Gwen Nieder uh, is trying to escape through that door. She's trying to get out. And he turns to her and he shoots her in the head, killing her. Peter Crosswell, the man who had pulled his two friends under the table in the cafe to try and save them, is shot in the buttock when Bryant sees movement near the front door and fires at the table that Crosswell and his friends were hiding under. Jason Winter, who was the man who had thrown the tray at Martin Bryant to distract him from shooting his wife and son in the cafe, thought Bryant had left at this point, and he stands up. But... Of course, Martin Bryan had not left. He spots him, and Jason Winter says, No, no, before being shot in the head, neck, and chest. He is murdered by a second shot to the head. Fragments of those bullets uh, ended up sh uh, striking an American tourist, Dennis Olson, who was hiding nearby. Bryant returns to the cafe, and, and then he comes back to the gift shop uh, for, some, some, for some reason. Uh, he goes to a corner where he sees people are hiding, and he shoots to death Ronald Jerry, Peter Nash, and Pauline Masters. He does not see Peter Nash's wife, Caroline, who Peter had earlier shielded with his own body. Martin Bryant then aims at an unidentified Asian man, uh, but the magazine of his gun is empty at this point. He goes over to the gift shop counter, he reloads the rifle, he leaves the empty magazine on the counter, and he leaves the building. This entire shooting in the cafe and gift shop took under two minutes. At this point, he's outside in the car park. Staff members of the cafe who had escaped through the back and were warning people in the car park see him coming. Some people are, are hiding in or behind buses that are that are parked in the lot. There are some still who are thinking it's a historical reenactment and are coming closer. Uh, Ashley Law, uh, a man who worked at the site, was steering people away from the cafe, and Martin Bryant fired at him from a distance, but he missed. 
Brian starts firing at random people. Uh, first of all, he, he fires at a bus driver named Royce Thompson. Uh, Thompson was shot in the back as he moved along the side of a bus. He, he was able to, to get down and, and roll under a bus for safety, but he actually later died of his wounds. He then fires on a group of people trying to hide, and he strikes Bridget Cook, who worked at the cafe and had been warning people outside. She, that bullet broke a bone in her right thigh and, and basically shattered it. And the bone fragments even struck another a bus driver who was there, Ian McKelly. Then Martin Bryant moves around another bus and fires at more people trying to escape. There's a woman named Winifred Alpin who Alpin Alplin, excuse me, who is shot in the side and dies. Uh, Yvonne Lockley is grazed on the cheek, but she's able to hide in one of the buses. People um, who were escaping are now starting to to try something different. They're trying to double back because someone has yelled at them that Martin Bryan is headed their way. So they they figure, you know, we'll double back and we'll try to escape him this time. But he hasn't. He shoots Janet Quinn in the back and she falls to the ground near where Royce Thompson fell, unable to move. Uh, Doug Hutchinson is shot in the arm trying to get into a coach. At this point, Martin Bryant sw goes to his car goes to the boot of his car and swaps out the AR-15 for an FN-FAL military rifle. He shoots at Denise Cromer, who was close to the penitentiary ruins, but he missed. He gets into his car, uh, which still has a surfboard attached to the roof. Uh, it's kind of odd and kind of unsettling when you see it in pictures because it just seems like he came there to go surfing and obviously he didn't. And he sits there in his car for a moment, but then he, he gets back out again and he heads back to the, the buses. He fires at a few people hiding behind cars, but they run into the brush to escape. He returns to Janet Quinn, the woman who he just shot in the back, and he shoots her again. He enters one of the buses and he shoots Elva Gaylard. The shot hits her arm and her chest, and it's fatal. In a coach parked next to that one, Gordon Francis saw this murder, and he starts heading down the aisle toward the door to try and shut it so that Bryant cannot get into his bus. But he ends up being shot by Martin Bryant from the other bus. And while he ends up surviving, he does end up needing four major surgeries. Janet Quinn's husband, Neville, has returned at this point to try and find his wife. Martin Bryant spots him and chases him onto one of the buses. He fires at him twice during the chase, but when he gets on the bus, he points the gun at him and he says, no one gets away from me. He goes to shoot him and Quinn ducks and the bullet hits his neck rather than his head, momentarily paralyzing him. So Martin Bryan assumes that he's dead. He leaves. And Neville Quinn is able, after a moment, to get out of the bus and go find his wife, who unfortunately dies in his arms. During this, Martin Bryan also fires at in another American tourist there, James Belasco, and misses. Belasco had kind of popped out to try and film the shooter, which it seems really weird when I, you know, read 
that he was American and he was trying to film the shooter. It just seemed, you know, Americans. But, um, uh, you know, it's still, it's, it's kind of interesting that, that we, we, you know, we get to this point and we finally have somebody who's trying to film the shooter in this day and age. There's always somebody whipping out their gun at this, you know, at any point to try and film something like this. By this time, though, Martin Bryant has killed 24 people and injured 12. So Martin Bryant gets into his Volvo and he starts to drive toward the park entrance. This is the point where I'm going to say if uh, if you're upset by the deaths of children, you may want to skip ahead a little bit. As this is going on, uh, multiple 911 calls are going to the closest police department, which is in Hobart, but Hobart's over an hour away. The closest officers are 14 miles away, so it's going to take them a little bit to get there. Meanwhile, at Port Arthur, you have Bryant, you know, in his car, honking his horn, waving, and according to some witnesses, firing his gun as he's driving up the road. As he's doing that, he sees Nanette Mikach and her two daughters, Madeline and Alana, who are three and six, respectively. They had been hiding, hiding out with Ian Kingston, but Nanette thought that if they made a run for it, they might be able to escape. Brian's car slows as he approaches them, and his door opens, and probably instinctively, Nanette Mikach moved closer, probably thinking that this man was going to try and help them escape. But at this point, people who recognize him are yelling, that's him, it's him. He stops the car and he gets out and he puts his hand on her shoulder. He orders her to her knees, at which point she says, please don't kill my babies. He shoots her in the temple, killing her. And then he shoots Madeline, who she was carrying, twice in the shoulder and the chest, killing her as well. Alana, the six-year-old, was running away. She saw what was happening and she had run. He shot twice at her until she hid behind a tree. At that point, he followed her. He walked up to her, pressed the gun to her neck and fired. All three of them died. Martin Bryant gets back in his car and drives up to the toll booth at the site's entrance. And at this point, um, I should mention that um, a man named Ian Hamilton had called up the woman in the toll booth to tell her to get down and not get up for any reason. When she protested because she didn't want to leave the money, he shot back, no pun intended, don't worry about the bloody money, just get down on the floor. So... He's up at the toll booth and he encounters a BMW, a gold BMW. He holds up the car. He blocks it off, gets out, takes the gun out. Inside the car are Mary Nixon, Russell Pollard, and Helen and Robert Saltzman. Robert Saltzman gets out of the car and argues with Bryant. And Bryant shoots him at point-blank range. Then Pollard gets out of the BMW to try and stop Bryant, but he's shot in the chest. 
as this is going on, you have cars who are trying to escape and come up and see this and immediately back up to try and get away. People are trying to escape and they're just, you know, it's cars trying to get away from this as quickly as possible. With those two men dead, Brian pulls the two women from the car and murders them in the middle of the road. He leaves their bodies there almost as traffic obstructions at this point. He goes to his car and he takes ammo, handcuffs, the AR-15, and a gas can, and he puts them in the BMW. It's almost like he knew exactly what was going to happen ahead of time, because there were certain things that um, were coming that he was going to need those particular tools for. Almost... Yeah, I hate to say it, but it was almost like a video game. You get, you know, you get certain tools and you don't know what they're for until later on you need them. He fires twice at a, another approaching car driven by a man named Graham Sutherland who quickly backs away in his car. Bryant gets in the BMW in and he leaves. In his car he has left his shotgun and hundreds of rounds of ammo. By now, he's killed 31 people and injured 19. There is a petrol station not far away from the historical site. And Graham Sutherland drives there. He starts warning people that there's a man with a gun and he's shooting people and he's killing people and he's coming this way. And people don't really know what to make of that. And then Bryant arrives. He pulls over in the BMW and he sees a Toyota, white Toyota with two occupants. He gets out and he tries to get um, Zoe Hall out of the car. Uh, but her boyfriend who is driving, his name is Glenn Pierce, gets out and, and heads over to Bryant to try and stop him. Martin Bryant orders Glenn Pierce at gunpoint to get in the trunk of the BMW. Closes the uh, lid of the, the hood of the uh, the boot of the, the car. And then he returns to the Toyota to find Zoe Hall attempting to get into the driver's seat. And he shoots her three times, killing her. The petrol station attendant locks the doors to the to the uh station and he grabs his own rifle but by the time he loads the gun martin bryant is already leaving in the bmw not long after that um he pulls over at the fox and hounds resort hotel and he gets out and he stands by the side of the road and he starts shooting at passing cars Michael Wanders uh, is a man who's, who's who's driving past at this point and He's driving past with his girlfriend, Linda White, in the seat, and he, um, his, well, his passenger, but not really sure if girlfriend or not, but um, he, uh, they're driving past, and they think that Martin Bryant is, like, shooting rabbits or something. And at that point, Bryant turns the gun on them. Uh, he shoots at the car, and it actually ends up severing uh, the throttle cable on the car, slowing it down. But the downward momentum of the road carries them away from Martin Bryant, who's still firing at the car. He strikes the rear, the rear window of the car and hits Linda White in the arm. 
he hits another car's windshield as it's coming towards him, wounding the driver, Douglas Horner, with broken glass. Douglas Horner nearly drives away, but he slows down to let Michael Wanders and, and Linda White get into his back seat before driving away. There's an, another car that, that starts to pass, uh, driven by Simon Williams, and Bryant fires at that car, and his wife Susan is wounded in the hand as they pass. At this point, Martin Bryant gets back in the car. He drives to Seascape in the BMW and he arrives. Uh, yeah, I've seen 2 PM. I've seen 3 PM, but basically he gets to, um, seascape and he removes his weapons from the car and he takes them into the house, into the guest house. I should say he removes Glenn Pierce from the trunk of the car. He brings him into seascape and he handcuffs him to the railing with the handcuffs he brought from the Volvo. After this, Martin Bryant goes back outside. He takes out the gas can that he had brought with him, pours the gas all over the BMW, and sets it on fire. Two hours later, um, two policemen approach. Well, I say two hours later. I mean, the time uh, seems to be a little um, give or take, depending on where you, you get your source. Um, but two policemen approach the guest house at Seascape. As they do, Martin Bryant fires at them, sending them hiding into a ditch. Back at Port Arthur, I mean, things are still really confused, as they are in most of these situations. Uh, people are still in hiding. They don't know where the shooter was. They don't know how many shooters there are. They don't know if he's gone for good, if he's coming back. So they're still, um, you know, some of them are hiding in, in different buildings. Some of them are, are hiding in the woods. You know, they're really just trying to make sure that they're not seen. Some people, some police are headed to Seascape, but others were staying at Port Arthur for exactly that reason. You, you know, they wanted to make sure that there wasn't another threat, like a second gunman or a bomb. And initial reports really were conflicting due to the speed of the assault. Things like this happen so quickly that you really can't be sure of anything. Yeah, if, the, if, if there's any proof of that, if you ever watch the news when a mass shooting is going on and they're trying to get the right information and they're just, I mean, you watch M um, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, you know, no matter which channel you watch, they're just kind of throwing information out there. Um, if you've ever read the book Columbine by Dave Cullen, it's a very good book about, uh, about the Columbine shootings. And it does mention that um, the way that the media gets around things like this is that they throw out um, questions like, well, you know, the shooters, you know, were they goth and were they this? And in the kind of leading questions to kind of get people to talk about, oh, yeah, they were goth. Oh, yeah. You know, they, you know, I don't really know them, but oh, yeah, they were goth and they were gay and they were, you know, all sorts of things like this. And they can report on rumors, um, but, the, you know, they don't have to actually back it up with facts. Um, I always kind of think of the leverage episode um, uh, where they kind of um, 
they steal an election and at one point you know the whole the whole thing comes down to um uh, they manage to steal an election by kind of leaking a rumor and they don't really and like they say he um Nate says at the end that the news isn't reporting, you know, fact, it's reporting rumor. It's, you know, it's not saying that this happened. It's reporting that people say they saw this. People, um, you know, we're hearing unverified reports of, we're hearing reports of this, you know, we're hearing this, you know, it's not a fact, it's something you heard. So this is the kind of things that are going on at Port Arthur, and it's the kind of things that lead to the sort of conspiracy theories that come on later in a lot of these shootings. Back at Seascape, there's a standoff going on. Six hours after the first policemen arrive at Seascape, a Tasmanian Police Special Operations Group team arrives. They call for a bulldozer. They have plans to use it in the raid. Part of that, though, is that they have to understand what's going on in terms of the hostage situation inside the building. They don't know what's going on. They know that Martin Bryant has taken someone from the petrol station, and they know that David and Nolene Martin are not accounted for. So they bring in lead negotiator Terry McCarthy. McCarthy calls in to the cottage, the guest house, and he it takes him a couple of times to get in touch with Martin Bryant, but when he finally gets him on the phone, um, Martin Bryant actually sounds cheerful. Um, there's a recording of him talking to McCarthy, and McCarthy asks him um, how things are going in there, and Martin Bryant says, just like a Hawaiian holiday, sir. Uh, he starts asking, um, and McCarthy's kind of thrown by this. He's kind of thrown by his tone, by the way he's talking. Um, and, uh, you know, he asks about the hostages. He says, the, the way that Martin Bryant talked about the hostages, he kind of got, um, uh, over the course of the next few hours, he got the impression very quickly that the hostages were probably not alive. Um, Martin Bryant does says that he's making bacon, eggs, and tea for the hostages, and and that sort of thing. But he says it, um, you know, I, I can't tell, but I'm not a lead negotiator um, that, you know, M McCarthy says that there were words that he used and phrases that he used that made him think, you know, that those hostages were not alive anymore. Martin Bryant claimed um, when he was talking to McCarthy that he had been surfing that afternoon and he really said nothing about Port Arthur. Uh, you know, that's something else that people who talk about the conspiracy that maybe Martin Bride didn't um, didn't do this, you know, they say, well, he said he wasn't there. Um, you know, my kind of reaction to that is, well, that's not really solid evidence. If, you know, if anybody had shot, you know, all those people, you know, what would you say? Um, you know, I, I would you brag about it? Or would you say, no, I, I wasn't there. I was surfing all afternoon. Um, but he finally, after after a while, he finally says that he wants to ride to the the airport in an army helicopter. Um, he keeps saying, I want a heli, I want a heli. He says, I've got the money. You know, I can pay for it if I have to. But after a while, um, there's a problem. The batteries and the cordless phone that Martin Bryan is using go dead. And at this point, McCarthy and the rest of the police cannot get in contact with him. 
as these negotiations are going on, as everything is, is going on, um, Glenn Pierce is murdered in the house. Not sure when, but Martin Bryant does murder him. After 18 hours of this standoff, early in the morning, about 8 a.m., Martin Bryant decides to create a distraction. He sets fire to the cottage. And apparently his idea was that he was going to set fire to the cottage and he was going to use it as a distraction to escape. But instead, he catches fire. And he runs out of the house at 8.25 a.m. with his clothes alight. At this point, the police rush over and they put the flames out. Bryant had burns on his back and buttocks, and he ends up being taken to the Royal Hobart Hospital, which is the same hospital where a lot of his victims were being treated. The guest house burns to the ground. And it's discovered afterwards when the police are going through it that uh, Martin Bryant murdered the Martins before the start of his rampage and that he had also murdered his hostage, Glenn Pierce. When he was in the hospital, Martin Bryant was under heavy guard in the burn ward. Uh, he, it was kind of a, a double-edged sword. They had him under heavy guard to protect him, but also to protect others. Because on one hand, I mean, he was doing things like um, making shooting motions at the nurses with his restrained hands. You know, so it was, you know, they were making sure that he didn't attack anybody. But people had also been making threats that they were going to come to the hospital and, quote unquote, even the score by killing him. Um, there's even a quote that I saw of the um, police officer who had been assigned to watch him for most of the time. And he kind of made a, uh, you know, a remark to Bryant, you know, if somebody, you know, if somebody comes in here to, to try and attack you, I'm just going to look over there and I'm not going to do anything. Police would find that Bryant had fired 250 rounds, more than 250 rounds, over the course of his shooting spree. One of the things that the police found when they got into his car was a large, clear garbage bag full of hundreds of live shells. I have no idea what that's like, but, that, you know, just the mental image of what that looks like is terrifying. When he was finally ready to be taken to trial, at first he pleaded not guilty, uh, but basically everybody, his lawyer, his mother, everybody kind of persuaded him to change his plea to guilty. As a result, um, he was sentenced to 35 life sentences plus 70, 735 years for other crimes. So he has to serve 1,035 years before he's eligible for parole. Probably not getting out anytime soon. In response to Port Arthur, Prime Minister John Howard began to use the shooting to push for gun control laws. Uh, a couple of those were, um, you know, he, the big thing was the National Firearms Agreement, which was a ban placed on all automatic and semi-automatic weapons. Uh, you know, and a lot of people, when, when they talk about um, this sort of um, uh, 
gun control legislation that came up after this shooting. You know, they make it sound like, oh, it just came up and everybody agreed on it. But much like in America, the pro-gun lobby did argue that the gun government was politicizing the tragedy and that they were doing this specifically to to push for gun control, which seems to kind of um, be the backing for a lot of the conspiracy theories that have come come out of the shooting as well. Um, another part of the gun control laws uh, that res that came out of this uh, was the National Firearms Buyback Scheme, which got I've seen different quotations for the numbers, which it seems basically around three quarters of a million um, guns out of private homes. Um, you turn them in, you get money for them, and all rifles and semi-automatics which were surrendered by the public were destroyed. As a result, um, the risk of dying by gunshots in Australia um, has been reduced by 50% since the uh, 1996 legislation came out. And the rate of gun-related suicides has dropped as well. Uh, gun homicides in Australia have dropped to about 30 to 40 deaths per year. So they've gone down. Um, I believe from what I've seen, it's, you know, um, it's kind of... You know, if it's gone off at all, it's a little bit, but it's not really, it, it has made an impact. It has made a definite impact. And like I said before, there's really been only one mass shooting since the um, uh, mass shooting at, at uh, Port Arthur, which one mass shooting in 20 years, we should all be so lucky. Martin Bryant is staying at Risden Prison in Hobart. Uh, he has changed a lot since the time that he, uh, uh, since he was the shooter in Port Arthur. He was, back then, he was, you know, he had a long, he had shoulder length, um, blonde hair, you know, he was young, um, he was relatively, I don't want to say skinny, but he wasn't, you know, he was, he, he was kind of lean, let's say. Um, now he's overweight, and he has a shaved head. Uh, so he doesn't look like the same person at all. He refuses all visitors, including his mother at this point, who has been in uh, several interviews I've seen um, and has written a book uh, saying that her son is not the shooter and that she does not believe he is the shooter and that, that if they had gone to trial, we would have discovered that. Martin Bryant spends his time in seclusion and under heavy sedation. Uh, he's allowed to spend several hours each day outside his cell. Um, you know, I, I saw one um, article which notes that when they see him outside his cell, he's normally kicking around an Australian football, uh, you know, um, that sort of thing. Um, he has attempted suicide six times, including trying to hang himself with a sheet. Um, he tried to swallow a tube of toothpaste, which got stuck in his tr throat, which is original. Uh, there's a mention that he's offered chocolate to other inmates in exchange for sex. Uh, and Last year, um, Channel 7 in Australia released previously unseen footage of his police interview in 1996, including his confession. And like I said at the beginning of of the podcast, he, he says in there, if people didn't do these unfortunate things, then you guys wouldn't have a job. Um, you know, there are parts of it where he, you know, kind of mimics 
things that he would have, you know, shooting his victims. And he says things like, um, you, you know, um, you, you think I did that? You think I, you know, he's kind of all over the place, but he seems really cheerful. I mean, I don't, um, I don't know, you know, whether or not you, you think he's innocent or not. I mean, the, the reaction is kind of indicative of the police saying that when his, his, you know, the police accounts of, of when his father died and he was kind of, you know, all over the place and he really didn't seem very affected by it. Here he is in this police interview and they're accusing him of murdering 35 people. And he's very, you know, he seems pretty cheerful and chipper and, and it just, I'm not exactly sure if, if that is, you know, um, uh, you know, an effect of his Asperger's or an effect of his IQ, or I, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what that may be an effect of, but suffice it to say, it doesn't, it feels very unsettling knowing what it's about. There were also um, documents that came out recently that showed that he seriously assaulted four people in prison in the last 18 months, including three government employees. Staff at the at Riston Prison have been urged to be cautious in their interactions with him. That's the, the phrase that they use a couple of times. At the Port Arthur Historical Site, um, the Broad Arrow Cafe was uh, demolished. And basically, there's kind of the, the stone walls of it are still up um, as part of the memorial. Um there was an uncommissioned uh, pine cross, which was put up on the waterfront soon after the shooting. It kind of bears the names of, of the people who died in the in the shooting. And it was moved alongside the ruins of the cafe in 2001. It's actually a really, really, really lovely uh, memorial. There was a garden and a reflective pool uh, were built uh, near there. So the visitors would have a place to gather and Annually, there's a wreath that's laying on the site, and a minute's silence is observed every April 28th. There was a 10th anniversary service, which was held in 2006, but locals kind of preferred not to deal with all that. They really didn't want to think about it at all. Um, and when 20 years was coming up this past April, um, you know, there was kind of that debate again. Do we do anything? Do we not do anything? You know, we really don't want to think about him, but we kind of want to honor the dead, that sort of thing. So they did have a 20th anniversary memorial service. Um, John Howard and his wife came. Um, Malcolm Turnbull came. Um, you know, there were um, people who had come to uh, honor those who had died. And, um, you know, to this day, staff at the Port Arthur Historical Site do not use the shooter's name. I've seen a couple of a couple of interviews where they, they talk about the shooting. Um, you know, they talk about, talk about the historical site and the impact that the shooting had on, on the local economy and how they had to kind of bring Port Arthur back to the state that it was in terms of, you know, attracting consumer, uh, attracting tourists and attracting people, you know, um, to come and, and see the site, uh, before the shooting and, after the shooting and and um they never mention his name they never talk they barely talk about him um um they talk about the tragedy but they don't really talk about you know they say a lone gunman they don't say his name uh 
more appallingly, uh, there's there's a producer in Australia, um, Paul Motor, who plans to start production on a movie about the massacre later this year, despite no, almost no one related to the massacre wanting anything to do with it. Um, I did see an interview uh, with him talking about uh, talking, you know, about making this and saying that, you know, he was going to um, focus, you know, he was going, he wasn't going to mask the horror of it. So suffice it to say, there's probably going to be a lot of, you know, fake blood and, and, and gore and, and it wasn't going to be, pr it's not going to be pretty if he does it. And he also does talk in the, the interview about how, you know, um, we need more guns in, in Australia. And I, I, I'm not even going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, my thing with mass shootings, and I probably should get this out of way now, so I don't have to talk about mass shooting this in, in other episodes about mass shootings. Um, I, when it comes to, you know, this sort of gun control and, and things like that, I, I grew up, I grew up in a family where my grandfather and my, um, uncle hunted. And my mother hates guns and my mother hates hunting. So, you know, I'm kind of dealing with these two things where she hates guns and she hates hunting. And then I go to my grandparents' house and there's a gun display and, and rifles and, and all kinds of different things. And, and, um... Uh, you know, but at the same time, my grandfather and my uncle are the epitome of what you want a responsible gun owner to be. You know, I did. I didn't touch guns. The you know, teaching me about guns was not how to use them. You know, as a little girl, it was you don't touch guns. They are weapons. They are tools, but they are weapons. You don't. They're they're not toys. They're not playthings. You don't take them out and take pictures with them. You know, you're, they're 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 dangerous, and you don't touch them. Um, you know, and only you only touch them after you've been trained and you have a license and you're going out. And they're not. You know, you don't handle them when you're at home, and you're you know you don't handle them around small children. And and you know they you know I was basically if I had looked sideways at the gun case, my grandmother would have flipped out. Uh, you know, stuck her head in from the kitchen and said, what are you doing? And scared me half to death. And so, you know, that's kind of what you want to see in a responsible gun owner. But unfortunately, in this country, you don't really see that. A lot of responsible gun owners, you see people who decide that the way they want to express themselves is by carrying a loaded gun into a target or to graduation or to somewhere else because they think they're going to stop a shooting like this. And my attitude like about that is I have been reading uh, about mass shootings since um, my high school years. I've been interested in these sorts of things for almost 15 to 20 years at this point. And, I, you know, I can count the number of, of times I have read about a shooting where somebody with a gun stopped somebody else with a gun on one hand and still have fingers left. And I mean, I, you know, I would love if everybody could step up and say, I don't want my guns anymore. You know, let's not have guns. Let's have, you know, let's have peace and unity. But I'm also a pragmatist and I know that's not going to happen. So, you know, I would like people to be like my grandfather and my uncle who were, uh, you know, I, I honestly wish we could teach, you know, use them as examples and say, look, here they are, you know, but um, apparently we're not going to do that. Apparently, we're just going to keep giving everybody guns and, and um, 
I'm not a big fan of guns myself. I have mental health issues and I really should not have a gun. Um, and so um, I should not live in a house with a gun. If I knew I was living in a house with a gun, I would probably um, do some harm to myself. I have never felt the urge to harm anyone else, but I have felt the urge to harm myself. And if there had been a gun in the house, I would have harmed myself. So reading about people who commit these mass shootings and the assumption that they're all crazy, quote unquote, um, is it's upsetting when you have mental illness and when you have, when you have a mental illness and you see these things and people just assume, you know, crazy people shoot, shoot up their school, you know, shoot up schools and shoot up this and shoot up that. And it's like, that's not, you know, or, you know, people who will call them crazy up until the point where they have to go to, to, um, to, uh, up until the point where they have to go to, um, I've lost the word, um, up until the point where they have to go to a jury trial and suddenly they're perfectly sane and they have to go to jail for the rest of their lives and not to an institution. Like, it, I mean, the way that mental health and mass murders have been, um, connected by the media is really upsetting and detrimental to the treatment of mental health, um, people with mental illness in, in society and 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 I just I I there's so many thoughts I have about about mass mass shootings and and the way they they are connected to the media and mental health and gun control and gun safety and and um and uh toxic masculinity. I mean, I could go I could go on for a really long time and part of that could be just me talking about the the mass shootings that I know. And I know a lot about mass shootings because I'm not joking when I say that I read a lot about them and I I'm I'm fascinated by them and and, and at this point I am fascinated by what people think will stop them. People point, uh, you know, Americans, a lot of Americans like to point to Australia and say it can work there. The, the Port Arthur massacre is proof that it can work if it can work there, you know, and they'll say it should it, it should be able to work here. My thoughts on that are mixed. I really would love if that were the case. I really would love if we could follow the example of Australia and turn around the 30,000 shootings, you know, gun deaths that we have every year in this country and do something about that. But I don't think it's as simple as gun safety laws. I don't think it's as, as simple as that, um, you know, as much as our two cultures are alike, there are things that are different. And I think even Australia, you know, Australians would say the same thing, you know, like they're not the same culture. It's not just because we, you know, it's English speaking and it's Western doesn't mean, you know, it's the same culture. Um, there are a lot of issues in American culture that are, you know, if, you know, if not absent, you know, that are not, if not absent from, from Australian culture are different in Australian culture. And so it's, it's not the same thing. And even though they do kind of have their NRA and, you know, they do kind of have their, their, their same sort of fight against the gun control laws that they have right now. Um, 
I'm not sure the same path would work. I think that we would need more work to get to the point that Australia has. You know, it's not, I don't think we we could do it in the same, you know, steps that they did. I think we need more steps because we're further a, a further away from where they were at this point. You know, at this point in time, when, when, when the shooter arrives at Port Arthur and starts his rampage, Australia is at a point that is so far behind where we are now in terms of how many shootings we have, how lackadaisical we are, how inured we are to shootings in the news. When we, when they show up on the news, we just kind of, we don't bat an eye. We don't care. So many of us just don't care anymore. I mean, I say us, I care. I mean, that's all, I read so much about these shootings, and it, I have never stopped feeling empathy for the people who, I, I, think, I think reading about them has made me more empathetic, because you read these things, and you just, why? Why do these people have to die? And you get frustrated, and the more you read about them, you say, you know, this is ridiculous, you know, and it, it's not going to be solved by somebody standing there, you know, walking into the room with their hand, you know, their concealed carry handgun and, and, and becoming Rambo, you know, it's not going to be that. And it's certainly not going to be more people having guns, because lots of people have guns right now, and quite frankly, that's not stopping anybody. Um, and it's it's really upsetting as somebody who, who has mental illness and, and who, you know, sees kind of the casual way that people treat owning guns in this country and just kind of... Um, um, it's it's frustrating, you know, when you when you have mental illness and you 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 aren't really a fan of guns anyway, and and you read about um, mass murders a lot. Um, it's upsetting to to read about Port Arthur and see a country try their best to to stop what happened. I can't remember the last time we tried to stop what happened. You know, when, when, uh, Port Ar you know, with Port Arthur, the government sees something happen and they try to fix it. When do we try to fix what we've done? When do we try to fix everything? Hopefully soon. <sighs> well, how about something a little lighter? Um,. The next episode is a movie break. Um, so it's a little lighter. Um, no more, let's not talk about, <laughs> let's not talk about these depressing things anymore. Um, let's talk about the movie break. Um, in terms of what movie I'm going to watch, I haven't decided yet. Um, we'll find out um, in a couple of days when I get a little drunk, watch a little disaster movies, <laughs> a little disaster movie, and um, we'll see how it goes. But, um, It'll be a lot lighter than this episode, I swear. Till next time, stay safe.